Okay, we ready to look through this? Okay, what is revelation? Disclosing so disclosure is the critical idea it's not the discovery but the disclosure of facts and ideas about God what are the two meanings that we assign to the word general when we talk about general revelation I put God revealed in well it's revealed to all men but God revealed in creation and God revealed in man's conscience right Conscience, not conscience. Yeah, yeah, conscience. Yeah, but what 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 were the two meanings of general though? Ge- oh, the general. word general. Oh. It's one of those things that words can only mean one thing at a time. But depending on what systematic theology you look at, they 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 assign the meaning differently. It either oh, means I got it. it's general information about God. Uh, or it's given to man generally. Uh, whether where, where special revelation, which we're going to start tonight, is given, it's to specific people, and it's specific information necessary for uh, for our our life and godliness. So, and what's the purpose? There's a slight trick to this one. <laughs> what's the purpose of general revelation? Family. You failed the quiz. Yeah. yeah. FaceTime with grandson. <laughs> <laughs> uh, judgment or condemnation is simple for mankind. Yeah, you know, it's one of those things where purpose and result can sometimes mean different things. I think the purpose that God originally intended for general revelation was to be a sort of a you know platform for special revelation, but the but the universal result of it today after the fall is as you said here uh, condemnation <coughs> so yes any questions on that fairly routine quiz today Not a lot of drama there okay well let's let's jump right into this tonight and see how how far we can go <coughs> So we're talking about special revelation tonight. We've talked about general. And uh, like like I said, that's our first point tonight. Like the term general, the term special can be used two different ways, both of which are accurate. Gives mankind specific, concrete, propositional information about God that couldn't be communicated other than by supernatural means. So you couldn't find specifics about, you know, the nature of sin, the... Uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, nature of saving faith, or the or the details about the life and death of Christ and His soon coming; Th- those things are simply not available to us by general revelation. So, it's specific information that has to be given to us propositionally and has to be displo- disclosed specifically by God in what effectively must be a supernatural way. It's a special message. And it is supplied exclusively to individual persons and groups. It has special recipients. So it's not given uh, uh, broadcast to everyone. It's given to specific people. Now, when we look at special revelation, we're not limiting our discussion to to biblical revelation, although that's our, our major source of special revelation. But there are other sources of special revelation, too, uh, that have taken place through the years. Uh, for instance, 
We've got direct revelation. God at one time spoke directly to individuals. He didn't talk to everyone, but he uh, talked selectively to people. Again, special revelation means that. Okay. Uh, so God said appears 3,000 times in the Old Testament alone. There's also in the... Uh, in the uh, another vehicle of special revelation is the mighty acts, the miracles of God. They disclose things about God that uh, are not couldn't be regularly seen in the routine providence uh, that we see in life. And so I, I have down there Exodus five. Pharaoh asks Moses, "Who is this God that I should do what He says?" And by the time we get to the end of the uh, the sequence of all the uh, plagues, he says, now I know <laughs> that there is no God except for the God in Israel. So so he, he got in some information. He derived it from the mighty acts he saw, the, the plagues. The lives of believers, um, perhaps perhaps one that I'm, I, I'm slightly hesitant to put in here because this is not a, a miraculous vehicle of special revelation. Um, but it is selective. Not everyone sees believers, but we do, and we do discover here in Matthew five that we are like salt and light, uh, revealing something to the watching world of what God is like, and uh, and, uh, and, uh, and and acting in a certain way as to uh, reflect uh, God. We are to be analogs of God uh, in in the world as believers. We are to be Christ-like. And being Christ-like, there is a sense in which we do, uh, always in a finite way, reflect uh, what God is like and, and should. Okay, the Bible, of course, is the one that naturally comes to mind here as a vehicle of special revelation, and we'll uh, talk about why that is here in a little bit because it's really the only one that is routinely available today. Uh, and then five. Hebrews 1, 2 says the climax of special revelation is not the Bible, per se, but Jesus Christ. The prophets spoke in various ways and means over the course of years, but now God has revealed himself through his Son, who is the direct representation of God himself. And so it's it's the greatest and best form of special revelation, but as we're going to see, the limitation here of that is that he's no longer available to us in a in a corporeal or visible visible way. So uh, we we revert then to the Bible as the primary source of revelation here. Okay. So what's in special revelation? Well, collectively, uh, the Bible gives us everything we need for life and godliness. That's what First Second Peter one three says. Second uh, Timothy three sixteen says that it is thoroughly equips us for every good work. So uh, so it gives us everything we need, and we'll talk a little bit more about these passages uh, a little bit below when we talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, so uh, they're they're part and parcel with each other. Okay, we come now to this question here as to which of these uh, vehicles of special revelation is primary, and uh, I go for a page and a half, and you'd say, well, wow, it doesn't seem like that should be all that difficult a question to ask and answer, but the fact is, in the big bad world out there, there isn't a lot of, there isn't 
you know, unity on this. Uh, many non-evangelicals, I say, argue that the individual's personal encounter with God is the greatest or even the only vehicle of special revelation. So, for instance, Schleiermacher, who is a representative of liberalism, theological modernism, climaxed in the late 19th century, but still persists with us. He argued that God existed outside the realm of sense experience and could not be apprehended through sensory or material media. And so faith is not confidence in the truth claims of an errant scripture, but rather an experience that is felt. Uh, and he had made much of the fact that religion is a matter of feeling. Okay, one, one feels one's religion rather than learning it from the Bible. Bart. Uh, who is New Orthodox, we talked about that earlier, argues that God is ultimately unknowable. He's totally transcendent, totally inapproachable, and he cannot be learned by imminent means, that is, close-at-hand means, such as human language, which, of course, is, like like we said earlier, a evolutionary development that man developed. Instead, he says, in order for us to really know anything about God, Christ himself must pierce through the barrier separating time and eternity in an individualized, what he calls, Christ event. Christ event. So we have this, uh, this you know, connection with God, that uh, some sort of an existential event that uh, occurs. And while, while, you know, a lot of people you talk to, you know, as you go out around, around your workaday world, won't actually use this kind of, a specific language. They think in those terms, right? They imagine that they're experts in religion because religion is a private thing. They have a a private experience of religion and that's what they believe and who are you to tell me that my religion is wrong because religion's just a matter of experience. And so I've had mine, you've had yours, and glad you've had yours, but don't don't bother me with it because your experience is not my experience. My experience is is normative for me. Your experience is normative for you, and don't bother me. Kind of, kind of approach. And so, and even in evangelical life, we can get a little bit of that flavor. Remember, we talked last time about those who would say that you know the Christian religion is a relationship and not a religion. Now, drawing attention here to the primacy of a relationship I have with Christ rather than the whole package that comes to us in in the in, you know with a with a rather substantial you know instruction manual if i can put it that way so i'll say even in evangelical circles there's a growing appreciation of mystical communiques private revelation speaking in tongues giving you know god gives peace to me things of that nature euphoric encounters that not only supplement the Bible, but in some cases actually supplant it. Okay, so uh, so if if I can get direct information from God, then why bother with the Bible, with the tedium of what, uh, you know, wading through all those words? I'll just have my direct revelation from God. And so even even within evangelical life, sometimes uh, we see that occurring. Sometimes formally, uh, with with churches that are deliberately continuationist, they, they actually practice tongues and prophecies and such, but then often informally as well, and uh, you, you're, you're acquainted with those kinds of things where 
you know, I, I need to know where to go to college. How do I learn how to go to where, where I'm going to go to college? You know, a kid wants to go to college. So what do I do? Well, you know, I squeeze my eyes shut really tight, and, and at the end, God tells me where I need to go. Well, no, that's not how it works. But but there's there's sort of this illusion of certainty that, that comes with that approach, and it gets people off your back. If you, <laughs> if God told me, then how can I argue with that? You know, I can't. But the fact is, that's not how God communicates today. So a priority of special revelation is not the personal encounter we have with God, whatever form that may take, but rather it's the Bible. Now, Christ is the superlative form of special revelation. He's the greatest manifestation of the invisible God. He makes the invisible God visible. Now that's the, the, the paradox, the irony of that. Uh, but the Bible reigns today as the privileged form of special revelation. Why do I say that? Well, I think, first of all, because a scripture text actually says as much, and then we can give some theological reasons as well. Second Peter 1, 19-21 I'll have it there in your notes. We have something more sure. Um, and he's just coming off of a discussion here of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ that uh, Peter, along with James and John, saw. In, uh, it's described in Luke 8 and Mark 9, I believe. Um, and uh, it's, a, it, it's quite an event for him. Um, and uh, it's he, he remembers it as though it were yesterday, mm-hmm. even though it happened probably 30 years previously. Um, and, you know, it, it's interesting to just even look at that event, because uh, Jesus has just told them, um, you know, you need to go forfeit your life and give up everything in this life in exchange for the hope of treasure and pleasure in the next life. Okay, this is a hard command. This is a hard thing to hear. And and he puts an exclamation point on that by saying to them, um, but in a few days, I'm actually going to let some of you get a glimpse of this kingdom. The very next verse says, about six days later, they went up into a mountain, and he was transfigured, and they see two individuals that really have no earthly reason to be there, Moses and Elijah. And so they're on this they're on this this mountain with Jesus and of course Peter's all geeked about it and says, Let's let's build some tents for for everybody who is here. And and you know, God the Father himself, you know, envelops them in a cloud and tells them that's not the point. <laughs> the point is this this is my son. Listen to him. Well, listen to what? Well, listen to what he says about what you need to do in this life in preparation for the next life, because there is a next life. And you just saw a glimpse of it. You saw you saw a window, a very tiny window into the kingdom. And for this reason you should be you should be convinced to live your life with eternal values in view and not and not, you know, trying to hold so tightly, cling so tightly to the things that are here. Um, and so, so this is, this is a grand event for Peter, but then he comes, so he describes all of this in Second Peter chapter 1, and then he comes to 19 and he says, and we have something more sure. A prophetic word. The Bible. 
to which you will do well to pay attention to, as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. So until the coming of Christ and the kingdom dawns. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture came from someone's own interpretation or origin, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried around along by the Holy Spirit. So he gives primacy and priority here to the Word. And the reason why the Word here is described in such such superlative terms is because it's a it's a it's a message sourced in God Himself. This is not something dreamed up or concocted. Uh, in terms of, of myths and 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 such, the uh, uh, the the uh, you know the, the the best attempts of men uh, to describe what happened. Rather, this is this is this is a this is a personal communique from God. Okay, and so uh, he says this is more short. Now, there's a couple of possibilities here for this idea that the scriptures are more sure, um, and uh, there's a a little bit of a technical discussion here, and, and in some ways it perhaps is not necessary to go through this discussion, but I, there, is, there, is a, there is debate here. It could be a comparative idea that Scripture is more sure than eyewitness accounts of the transfiguration of Christ, so the Bible is better than seeing a miracle. The Greek word here, bebaios, would in, be understood in this case as attributive, a more sure word of prophecy. Uh, the other idea that's reflected in the NIV is, a, is the idea of confirmation, that Scripture is proven to be most trustworthy or very sure by means of the confirmation of eyewitnesses such as Peter, James, and John. And the Greek here would be understood in a predicative function, that is, the Old Testament prophecies, particularly that of the kingship of Christ, are surer than ever because of the visible window into their fulfillment on the Mount of Transfiguration. And I say, you could pro- I could probably go either way, honestly. Whichever interpretation one takes, the result is to elevate the Scriptures to the very highest levels of certainty and authority. The Bible is sure. The Bible is certain. I'm inclined to go with the first. And I know that that's not the uh, majority position uh, in the... Uh, commentaries these days uh, but for theological reasons it seems to fit the context better I don't know where you are on that but it's complicated it <laughs> <laughs> means he disagrees <laughs> with me the 2011 actually changed that oh did they okay they have an elative it says we have the word of God made that made more certain was the in 84 but the 2011 says we have a prophetic message completely reliable. Okay. No comparison. So, so it doesn't really commit to doesn't, either. Doesn't commit. It's no comparison. Okay. It's a superlative or a okay. idea. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it, yeah. Honestly, I, 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 we could go either way on this one, but the conclusion is pretty clear. The Bible is a, is a completely sure, a very sure uh, thing. And uh, that's that seems to be the point. And I, I'm inclined to think that it says more than just that it is very sure or or extremely sure, but actually it's more sure even than an eyewitness uh, um, account or eyewitness uh, 
you know, glimpse into the kingdom or the or the uh, or or seeing a miracle performed. Thomas Thomas would just say the first one probably. Oh, would he? Well, I don't know. I, I, I mean, from reading it, it sounds like yeah. he says that we're not that man's not the one to decide whether something's mechanical or not. Right. Yeah. Well. So yeah. He's we're not say that. judging the truth of scripture by right, but. I, Right. I don't know that that necessarily determines where he is on that this particular question, but certainly he's he would be of a mind here. Certainly that the Bible arises to the top then of of certain revelation that we receive from God, and the reason for this is manifold. One, it's the only form of God's self disclosure that properly partakes of inspiration talk about that in just a little bit here but inspiration we're going to see has to do only with the text and uh, we're going to see here that inspiration creates something a pack of a package god inspires a specific block of material that is sufficient for life and godliness and has been preserved as a as a block that that is and we're going i'm going to i'm going to connect all of these together what god has inspired he has preserved what he has preserved uh, is is sufficient, and we have a package deal here. Okay, so it's a it's a nice tidy package that gives to it. God gives to us uh, uh, through the miracle of inspiration. So it's inspired. Secondly, it's the only form of revelation that contains all of the information necessary for life and godliness. Okay. And so we have, uh, so you know, we may get specific information from miracles or, or other, you know, bits and pieces of revelation that come to us in various means, but you can't cobble all of that together and get everything you need. The Bible contains everything we need. So again, so that's a second reason why it's superior. It gives us it's a it's a sufficient word. Thirdly, it's propositional. That is, it utilizes human language as words, sentences to convey absolute truth about God, which is, which is the, the which is the most economical way of communicating, right? Okay, um, we sometimes say that a picture is worth a thousand words, but when it comes to revealing God, a word is worth a thousand pictures, right? Because picture you know we have you know we have stories through through the book of acts where a miracle occurs and and everyone concludes ah these these must be the greek gods come down from heaven oh no you you missed it uh, it was it was a it was a spectacular special revelation but they they couldn't interpret it because it didn't come to them in the form of words okay it came as a, a spectacular event a, a healing or something of that nature Fourthly here, it objectifies the knowledge of God and removes it from the realm of pure sense experience. Uh, you know, other forms of revelation that we sometimes speak to are experiential, they're existential, and when we look at the Bible, it comes to us in words, giving us the means necessary for a genuine knowledge of God and limiting our conceptions of God to conform with the content of Scripture. Unlike Bart, in which revelation is subjective and transitory, it can change from generation to generation, the Bible stands as an objective, permanent deposit of God's sovereign will for all mankind. 
And all of that together, it comes together to say it is the superior form of special revelation today. And then finally, it's complete. Comprises a whole tradition that is able to equip mankind thoroughly, giving them everything necessary for a life of godliness. So all of that uh, builds up then to the conclusion that the Bible is what we really need to look at more than anything than any other form of revelation. Um, and so really the rest of our course here is given over to that topic. So this is this is the conclusion of anything any all other forms of revelation other than the Bible. Now we are in you know truly in bibliology proper here. Okay? So any questions on that? Does that does that follow? Okay. Well, we said we would uh, uh, go in, a, in an order here. So we started here with the, uh, the concept of revelation, disclosure of ideas. Now we, now we move to the transmission process here. So God is going to transmit this information here by the miracle of inspiration. We spend a little time here because I think this becomes foundational uh, for the rest of the, the pieces of bibliology that we're going to speak to. Okay, so the purpose of God's self-revelation would be incomplete if it stopped at mere revelation. God's intent was that his revelation be sufficient to thoroughly equip the man of God in every generation for every good work, giving him a deposit of information, perpetually supplying man every everything necessary for life and godliness. So that's his goal. And for that reason, it was necessary for him to create some sort of permanent, infallible record, a truth deposit, in order for God's special revelation to fulfill its purpose. And the mechanism that God uses to accomplish this is the miracle of inspiration. Okay, so let's let's see if we can't detail this. First, we're going to say here that inspiration has to do with the record and not the revelation. Perhaps I... I'm getting ahead of myself because we're going to look at some key texts here, uh, but uh, just some, 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 you know, just some bullet points to start us off with. Inspiration is not something that happens to the writer of scripture. Now, we we sometimes use the word, word inspiration that way in common usage today. You know, uh, uh, I was inspired by a poem or a song or a sunset or something of that nature, and so. Now, something happened in my mind that sort of was a eureka moment. My mind was warmed, or, or whatever the case may be. You can do whatever wording you want to. But that's not what we mean by inspiration. We are not inspired, nor were the authors inspired. The product was inspired. In fact, we're going to see that the term here, inspired, it actually means something that's breathed out. So it's not that people are breathed out. The words are breathed out. So, so it's the Bible that is breathed out and not the uh, the individuals. And so inspiration then has to do with the writer and uh, writing and not the writer. So inspiration properly understood doesn't deal strictly with divine revelation alone, includes much data that was secured by discursive means. And particularly as you go through the Old Testament, you find that the, uh, the writers of Scripture uh, piece together uh, their, their writings from all different kinds of sources. I think uh, John Whitcomb says that there's actually 17 different sources that are referenced in Chronicles alone. Any of these these books of the you know the 
books of the kings of Judah and the books of the kings of Israel. And, and, and so the, he, he actually cites 17 different sources that he used to, to compile his material. So not all of this information comes to the, uh, the writers of Scripture in some sort of a miraculous way. Uh, much of it is is cobbled together from sources. Uh, now God superintends it such that the the selection of this material and the and the and the, and the gathering of this material is is done in a way that none of the material partakes of any error. At the same time, it's not always a miracle uh, whereby someone gets this information uh, to 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 put it down in the scriptures. So those are some basic. Some, some basic ideas we want to start with about what inspiration is about it has to do with the the words being put on the page. So there's several definitions of inspiration that are out there. Probably the most famous one, probably the most cited one, if I could put it that way, is one by B.B. Warfield. Inspiration is an in is a supernatural influence exerted on the sacred writers by the Spirit of God, by virtue of which their writings are given divine trustworthiness. I've actually got a couple of problems with that that definition, but I think he captures the main point at least. The writings are trustworthy. Perhaps we could use a stronger word than trustworthy, inherent perhaps. Of course, he's living in a day where... Um, Inerrancy was not so much the big question, and so uh, they were using term, they were using a term infallibility in those days. But that wasn't really where the debate lay in those days. So uh, that's not the emphasis made here. But the idea here is the writings are God's, even though they are written by man. Ken Cancer, perhaps as the best long definition, if I can put it that way. But it's really it's really hard to memorize if you're if you're going for it <laughs> for this. So, so it's not gonna be on the quiz. <laughs> well I'll probably ask for a, a definition, but I'm gonna actually recommend the last one here. So uh, but let's go through Ken Cancers first. Biblical inspiration may define be defined as that work of the Holy Spirit by which Without setting aside their personalities and literary or human faculties, God so guided the authors of Scripture as to enable them to write exactly the words which convey His truth to men, and in so doing, and in doing so, preserve their judgments from error in the original manuscripts. Or, inspiration is the work of the Spirit whereby he employed the instrumentality of the whole personality, literary talents, and various faculties of the human writers to constitute the words of the biblical autographs as his written word to men, and therefore of divine authority and without error in faith, what we ought to believe, and practice what we ought to do. I think it's a, it's a, good, it's a, it's a good definition, it's just not a succinct one. Probably the best succinct definition here comes from John Frame, and uh, and uh, I like it because it really captures the important point here. It is a divine act that creates an identity between the divine word and the human word. That's it really captures it pretty well. It, it is a little bit open ended because he'll actually he actually goes ahead and uses this definition for 
for verbal prophecy as well. Uh, but uh, but as far as it goes, at least when we're when we're thinking in terms of the Bible, uh, this is this is a really tidy little uh, definition of inspiration. You remember we had that we had a a, thing, a seminar one time. And we went through dozens of these definitions of inspiration. The frame wasn't frame hadn't written his material yet. I, I really think this is probably the best thing I've seen. I don't know. What, what do you think on that? But well, I think you know when I talk, my use as intro, I've got I got three definitions too, but none, none of them are these. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got Hodges. You know, Hodges has got a definition of that article. Uh-huh. I like I I've got long ones. and I got Ryrie's and right. You know, so I got three too, but they're not. <laughs> there's so many of them out there. Yeah. Once I saw once I saw frames, I I didn't I wasn't looking anymore. No, it, it's yeah. just a really. It's yeah. a, I just thought it was really well done to, yeah. to capture. Yeah. In a few words, yeah. What what is what the what is the intent of inspiration? Okay, so before we get look at the uh, the, the specific text, and maybe I should have looked at them first, but uh, there's a there's a few false ideas about inspiration that are out there. Probably the first the first four here sort of drift to the left, and then the last one sort of is on the far right of us. So it's, it's so they're not all they're not all of a sort here. There are some who hold to a degrees theory of inspiration, such that certain parts of the Bible partake of greater degrees of inspiration than others. So the part of the Bible is really inspired, and parts of it are, are less so. But the fact is, truth is not subject to decrees, degrees. Either the Bible is revealed by God and true, or it's not. Um, furthermore, if we adopt this theory, then we have to ask the question, who decides? <laughs> who gets to decide what the really inspired sections are and the less inspired sections are? Is it, is, is it because of a lofty style? The, the character of the author? It's the universal nature of the material that we're we're speaking of, you know, the those those you know well known lines from the Sermon on the Mount are they better? Are they more inspired? Why, how do we know? In truth, this determination usually falls to the reader and his personal preference. I I like this verse better than some of the others, and so I'll 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 privilege it. Well, that's that's we're not to be sitting in judgment over the scriptures to decide which parts of the scripture we like more than others. That's, that's a very bad situation. There's also something called the dynamic theory. Dynamic theory. This is not to be confused with the dynamic equivalence approach to Bible translation. So I, I think sometimes people get those confused. But uh, now let me explain this here. In the dynamic theory, only the thoughts of the Bible are inspired. The material is from God, but the words are from men. So God gives these ideas to people. And people, you know, try and put it into the best words they can. So words are inadequate for conveying God's truth adequately. That was a redundancy. Um, so, so man must translate God's thoughts imperfectly into human language, at time inserting their own, their own fallible judgments. Again, the, the, my basic answer is you don't have thoughts that are not words, right? If you're thinking, you know, you're, you're, sometimes you sit there thinking. You think in words. You don't think in pictures. Because uh, you can't communicate in pictures. So 
So, so this whole idea of God communicating ideas without words is just a foreign one to the way we operate. Okay, now we have to have words in order to have propositional ideas. So thoughts always have words for structure and validity, even in our minds. There's no such thing as propositionless thought. Okay. You know, thoughts that don't have sentences attached to them. This theory thus removes truth from the realm of the mind and gives too much liberty to alien nuance. Not, not, not aliens from Mars, but, uh, <laughs> but all kinds of forces out there that, you know, come to bear and say, you know, that's not quite so true as it, or maybe it means something else. Making the Bible then both irrelevant and unnecessary to the degree that we can say this about the Bible, that this is, these are not the words of God, but they're just words that sort of try and capture these ideas about God. Well, at that point, this becomes a rather uh, unimportant book for us. Okay. There's also here an inspired myth theory. This actually I didn't have in my notes here when I first started teaching this, this course, uh, because uh, this is sort of a new one on the block. The idea here is that the Bible is from God, but it employs a lot of myths and other literary devices that may or may not be true to communicate the Christian message. Okay, and so the maybe I should back up and talk about what myth is. Um, I think sometimes when we when we hear the word myth, we think lies. You know, <laughs> they're untruths. But that's not what is meant by myth. Uh, the idea of a myth is something that the truth is irrelevant. It may be true, it may not be true. It's the underlying message that's important. A case, uh, case for us, a, a, a more modern example. Uh, there's a story uh, circulates from the 19th, 18th century that George Washington chopped down a cherry tree and his father discovered it, confronted him, and, you know, Washington made this famous statement here, I cannot tell a lie. I, I'm the one who did it. I, I chopped down the cherry tree. The, the problem with this story is that there's, there's no evidence that it ever happened. Okay? This is a, it's a story that we like to think is true because... It is reflective of the kind of character that the founders of our country had, or at least we like to think that way, right? Okay. And so even if it isn't true, it tells us something about the founder of our country. George Washington was a man of integrity. Whether the story was true, eh, may or may not be true, but he was a man of integrity, okay? And the idea then is that the Old Testament, particularly, and and you know most particularly in the first, the opening chapters, the first eleven chapters of Genesis, are not necessarily telling us what happened, but are giving us sort of an idea of the character of the God that made this information, and perhaps gives us some sort of, you know foundation for the way the world is operating today. Did it happen this way? Maybe, maybe not. It's irrelevant. All we know is that God is a pretty spectacular God who put everything into motion. Uh, the specifics, uh, those are, those we can, those are negotiable. But God was a 
grand god setting it all into motion. And so the idea here is that these there may be bits and pieces of truth in those stories, uh, but ultimately the truth is irrelevant to the general message that comes out of that book. And, that, and, and the reason why a lot of people think that way is because that's, that's how many of the, uh, uh, the civilizations of the world operate. For instance, there's Greek myths and Roman myths that are rather fantastical. And if you ask a, uh, a Greek, perhaps even an ancient Greek, are those stories true? They would say, no, no. No, those stories aren't all true. But they give us sort of a, 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 a reason for the Greek world and why it's here and why we are the way we are. Okay? Um, and so the understanding is that that was how the, the biblical uh, worldview was established as well. We, we really are cloudy about how it all happened. Uh, but uh, these these give us sort of a foundational story uh, that uh, allows us to 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 move forward from it. Okay, so that's that's what we mean by myth. It's not so much deliberate lies here, uh, but uh, does that make sense? Does that follow? My answer to this is that there's a fundamental difference between Old Testament history and these other kinds of literature. Parable, perhaps, is another one. You know, we could, we could ask that, you know. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the Good Samaritan, the Levite, and, you know, the, the priest, you know, all these characters, they went down to Jericho and all that. We could ask the question, did that really happen? Could have. Okay, that's it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great answer there. Yeah. Did it happen? I don't know if it happened. I, it, it, he may be reflecting something that actually happened. More likely he's giving a, a, a scenario that would be fairly commonplace. It could have happened that way. Did it happen that way? Was there a good Samaritan? Was there a priest? And was there a Levite that, that you know intersected on that, on that road to Jericho? It's irrelevant. To the point of the parable, right? Okay. Yeah, and so that the, the argument then is okay. That's what they were doing back in Genesis one to eleven. This is parabolic literature. It is mythic literature. It's not necessarily true. It just gives us a, a, a general message. But there's a fundamental difference between Old Testament history and parables, and myths. Parable and myth carefully use the language of simile clear pointers to illustrative material, but Old Testament history, on the other hand, lacks these pointers, and the rest of the Bible relies heavily on the veracity of the accounts of the early chapters of Genesis to establish the truth of critical doctrines. You know, these things these things happened. You know, there was there was Jonah and a whale. And it happened that way and and because and 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 the, and the statement is just as Jonah was three days, three <coughs> nights in the belly of the whale, so also Christ will be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth. Well, if he wasn't in the whale, <laughs> what's the, yeah. the, the 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 analogy sort of falls apart? Okay, uh, just as Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness, you know, a snake on a pole. Even so, must the Son of Man be lifted up? You know, you know the story that they put the snake up on the pole, look and live, and uh, and, and this 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 
in you know this insurgence of all these snakes is is gone and the people are healed if they look and if they look they lived well if that didn't actually happen uh, then the uh, the promise of the crucifixion and its results and its and its benefits for us uh, lie in the balances as well okay so so these stories are true they must be true and i think we can also say that this passage in second peter 1 that we just referenced Comes, it seems precisely crafted uh, to to counter this idea. He says here in verse sixteen, "We did not follow cleverly invented myths when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rather, we were eyewitnesses." <laughs> so, so it's it's almost as though Peter has the twenty uh, first century in view when he says, "No, the Old Testament is not mythic literature." He actually uses the word depending on what translation you have in front of you, um, and, uh, and I think it's it's uh, it's 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 well intended there. Okay. There's also a moral theory that the moral and spiritual matters in the Bible are inspired. The salvation verses, perhaps the Ten Commandments, these these well-known lines from the Sermon on the Mount do unto others as you would have others do unto you and the like. But the scientific and historical and other such matters may have errors. So the purpose of Scripture, it's not a science book. You often hear that kind of line used. And it's not. It's not a science book. But when it does speak to scientific issues, it is accurate. And that's that's the point. Uh, but the moral theory says only the moral portions of the Scripture are accurate um, and the, uh, the details of science and history... Uh, may or may not be. But my answer is this. If the Bible is wrong on what we can observe and corroborate, why would we want to believe the things that we can't? <laughs> right? You know, I can, you know, I, yeah, the, the Bible might not be true about history. Well, I can actually go to other sources, extra biblical sources, and Bits and pieces of the Old Testament story, I can say, yeah, there's 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 other sources that actually corroborate what's there. Um, same thing with with science. You know, we can we can piece together things about you know uh, you know uh, earthquakes that took place and 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 such. You know, and, and and other astronomical things that are described in the scripture. We can actually go to the Go to secular sources and corroborate them. So if the Bible's not right on those kinds of things, then why should we believe it on matters of moral import that really have no, no means of corroboration? So I think all of these theories really fall flat, although they're, they're widely held, uh, and uh, whether, whether consciously or not, uh, probably a lot of people you speak to who yeah, may have a generally high regard for the Bible are operating on one of these four approaches here. And we can't afford to do that because inspiration um, does more, more for the, the Bible than that. There is also here one last point here, letter E, which is the dictation theory, which is if, if, if these four were sort of left-edge, left-wing kinds of, of approaches, this one's sort of, you know, way over on the other side. This is the sort of a, a, a right-wing kind of thing. 
The idea here is that the Bible writers were rote datographers, mechanically reproducing God's truth word for word. So God basically spoke slowly, and they wrote, you know, wrote word for word for word, the exact words that God said. Okay? And there are some portions of the Bible where that's true. Uh, for instance, you know, the, the Ten Commandments were actually written by the finger of God. So, I mean, it's it's not as though uh, Moses had much... Uh, much to do with those, at least the ones that were written in the in the original stones. There, uh, they were copied, of course. And there's there's other places where, you know, in Jeremiah, for instance, uh, God says to Jeremiah, "Get out a piece of paper and start writing these words." You know, and so he actually dictates some information, and and Jeremiah does write it out. But for the most part, that's not how the Bible came came to the to the writers. Now, the mere fact that these passages may be singled out as such indicates that this is not true of the most of the Bible. This theory fails to account also for all of the evidences of individual personality among the Bible writers. Uh, and if, uh, if you become skilled at uh, reading Greek, you can open up your scriptures and, and, and know that Paul and Peter and John have you know, idiosyncrasies of writing, uh, vocabulary sets that they use, just like just like we do. Um, you, know, you know, Paul, for instance, always uh, seems to use the word children, where John always uses the word son, uh, or, or so the way around. Sorry, the opposite. Let's, let's flip that. Um, and sometimes there's there's all kinds of discussion. What, what's the nuance of dif, di, distinction between son and child? And the answer is there there isn't any. Uh, that it's just that one author preferred one word, one author preferred another. You know, sometimes when we talk about our kids, and you know, my wife talks about our children. Uh, we're not talking about different people when we use those words. <laughs> so. Um, and, and the same thing goes on. We ha- and we find this routinely through the uh, through the uh, scriptures. That's how we know Hebrews isn't written by Paul, for instance. <laughs> That's a, sort of an inside joke. Though. <laughs> so the, this theory fails to account for the evidences of individual personality among the biblical writers and the Bible's own citation of itself. Uh, the Bible, for instance, when it cites itself, doesn't always cite word for word. We'll have a little discussion of that a little bit later. It's one of the, uh, the uh, it actually causes people a little bit of angst sometimes when uh, the Bible is cited, uh, one portion of the Bible is cited by another portion of the Bible and they don't do it word for word. And it can perhaps make us a little bit ill at ease. We'll talk a little bit about that. But the very fact that that kind of stuff exists means that we don't have direct dictation going on. I say also, embrace of this theory also tends to result in making people treat the Bible like a fetish. Okay, these are, these are special, these are, these are, you know, God's own words. These are the ones he said. Um, and, and so what ends up happening is we, we think of the words a little more highly than we ought to think. Um, and so we end up worshiping the Bible rather than the God of the Bible, if that makes sense. You know, I think we sometimes see this happen, for, for, for instance, among the King James-only community. These words are special words. These are, these are better words. They're magic words. 
don't change them. Even if you don't understand them, don't change them because they're magic words, because they're God's words. Well, I think what, what ends up happening, we start worshiping the Bible rather than the God of the Bible. So we, we don't want to, we don't want to go, go, go that direction. Okay? So those are some false understandings of inspiration <laughs> thoughts. Uh, that uh, you want to. It seems like too, just with the gospels, right? You'd have trouble with that. With yeah. Four different gospels, and right? Different. You know, yeah, we'll talk about that one. There's, there's actually this a little debate that goes on. Actually, uh, some folks out at Master Seminary um, take a very, very tight view of 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 the writing of Scripture, such that if there's a there's a, a difference. In the accounts, and so Mark says the words are one way, Luke says they're another way, Matthew says they're another way. Um, then they're all right, and they all three copied down exactly what Jesus said. But he must have repeated himself and used different words. And Luke, Luke copied the one section of you know his sermon, and Mark from the other, and, and Matthew from the other, because because we know they couldn't possibly have used changed a word. Because these are Jesus' words, but uh, as we're going to see here, as we work our way through it, that's that's not how language works. There, there, language can be communicated more than one way and have exactly the same the same intent. Uh, so uh, it's not it's not as though we have a <coughs> limitless number of ways words can be communicated, uh, but it's not as though there's just one either. So if the words are all in red, does it? <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't have one of those. Actually, I think mine is. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is interesting because sometimes that that sort of fits in with that yeah. with that that partial inspiration. That some sometimes when we see there those red words, oh those re- those red words are more important than the black words. Well, no, they're not. They're, they're all equally inspired material. Just because Jesus spoke them does not make them more true or more important. Uh, the whole Bible is equally important. In that regard. Yeah, it's good. So I'm glad you brought that up. Okay. Let's see if we can't uh, get through at least one of these texts here on uh, inspiration. We'll start with 2 Timothy 3.16 which reads that all scripture is God-breathed. And really, it's those three words that we want to look at. All scripture and God-breathed, because those are the critical words here. The first word here is God-breathed, or theopneustos. Uh, the reason I put that, I you know, sometimes I, I put some words in here, sometimes it's not necessary, but you can perhaps see that, theos, which is what? Theology, theos is what God, God. and pneustos. Perhaps, perhaps you can hear some English words in there: pneumonia, pneumatic. Okay, so it's air, right? So wind. So, so God breathed. Okay, so you can see that in the word there. The NIV reading is very most literal of all the standard translations. The the Bible is God breathed. Inspired is actually a Poor translation in some ways. Um, if, if anything, the word expired would actually be better. You know, it's breathed out, not breathed in. Mm-hmm. So it's breathed out, but we don't want to say that the Bible's expired. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it sounds really bad. So, so we don't talk about the expiration of Scripture. We, we talk about the, uh, the, uh, the inspiration and the fact that it is God breathed. 
Okay, The term occurs only here in the New Testament and is found nowhere else in Greek literature prior to this time. It may be a word that Paul actually invented on the spot. It's, 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 it's hard to know. It's possible. But just because the word is rare does not mean that the concept is, 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 is a strange one. Uh, for instance, in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth all their host. Genesis 2, 7, God breathed into his nostril and animated Adam. Job 33, 4, the breath of the Almighty gives me life. So all of these these ideas of God breathing in the idea of producing or animating something is, is something that we find throughout the Old Testament. So then, Scripture is in the same category as the heavens, and as man's spirit in those passages, as being produced by God's creative power. So God breathed it out. God produced them. God created them. And this this meaning, theapneustas, carries with it a passive significance. Uh, the idea here is that scripture is a production of God. If the meaning of the term were active, it could carry the idea of God, the Bible breathing something out about God, or God breathing some sort of divine power into the Bible, but that's not what is intended here. It has been God breathed. It has been breathed out by God. And so it has to do here with the origin of Scripture and not the effect of Scripture. It's not that the Bible is inspiring when we read it. But rather, it is inspired. The, the effect of God's breath is the product. The Bible is not inspiring. It doesn't give inspiration subjectively. Um, instead, the term carries the Hebrew idea that the Bible's origin is God. So that's what theopneustos means. God breathed, or in uh, many translations, inspired. Okay? Questions on that term? Thoughts? Do you want to add anything there? Yeah. <clears throat> Second word here is scripture, which is the word, the Greek word graphe, uh, which simply means writing. That's 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 simply the that's a simple meaning of this writing or script. And so, what is God breathed? What is inspired? Is the text? It's not the people. It's the text. So the writings and not the writers partake of inspiration. The writers weren't breathed out. They weren't the product of God's breath, at least so far as the context of this verse is concerned. The writings were the product of God's creative breath. In the New Testament, this term always appears with reference to the Jewish canon, although there are at least two occasions in which New Testament Bible verses actually start to be uh, be be incorporated into this block of material that's called scripture as well. Uh, so so we're talking specifically about the Old Testament scriptures, but I think as the New Testament works its way along, he's talking not uh, only about the Old Testament scriptures, but the New Testament ones as well. The major discussion of inspiration here, Second Timothy three sixteen, and then also Second Peter one, which we won't get to next week. Here, both mention here uh, the word scripture. Okay, so while we don't have a, a huge number of Bible verses to go on, 
we should probably think here in terms of the writings as what is technically inspired. Now, you might say to me, well, everything that Jesus said was inspired because he got, he's God and he breathed it out. Or perhaps even what the prophets said but never wrote down. Um, and in a, in a, in a, in a general sense, that is true. But the, the technical word inspiration as it appears in scripture seems to be restricted to that which has been written down. And as we, and, and, and part of the argument as we work through the rest of these notes are is that there's a package. What is inspired is preserved. It's canonized. It's sufficient. It's inerrant. And so this, this block of material, this block of material is, is inspired and nothing else. Okay. Um, even though in a general sense, anything that a prophet or that Christ said was breathed out by God, that's, that's, it doesn't technically partake of inspiration. Does that, does that follow? Does that make sense? Okay. The last word here in this section is all. So all scripture is God breathed. Uh, what does the word all mean? Well, whether the term is rendered all or every is, is materially incidental. Um, both are true. All the words are inspired, inspired collectively and every word individually or distributively is inspired. Uh, the point here is that all writings that fall within the category of the sacred scripture, which in any scheme of interpretation includes the entirety of the Torah, are God-breathed. So all of them. Uh, so it, again, there's no, there's no possibility that we can distinguish between words that are inspired and those that are not. All of them are inspired. Uh, what we cannot do with this, this phrase is to say, all that the, all of the scriptures that are inspired are profitable. Uh, that's, that's not how the, the text reads. It's all of them are inspired and all of them are profitable. <clears throat> okay? So that's our, that's our first text, probably our, our, yeah, our best go-to text for de- this defining inspiration. But there's a couple of other texts, too, that I think can fill out some of the, the information, particularly when we're trying to ask the question, well, how does it work? How, 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 how did it happen? What was the process that God used uh, for inspiring the Scripture? And so we'll look at two texts next time that I think perhaps fill out, you know, answer a few of those questions. I mean, there's still a bit of mystery involved in there that I can won't be able to give an answer for, but it does fill it out just a little bit more uh, as we work through it. Any questions on that first text, Second Timothy three sixteen? What we call it tonight? Okay. Well, then uh, we will see you next week.